This is the Dan Grosser Show on 98.7 ESPN. Our number trace on this Saturday morning. Dan Grosser Show, 98.7 ESPN. Taking it right up until 1230. Then it's Rangers hockey, Rangers and the Bruins here on 98.7. I'm looking forward to this conversation. There was a new book out from Penguin Random House. It is called How Basketball Can Save the World, 13 Guiding Principles to Reimagine What is Possible. We talk a lot of basketball on this station. We talked a lot of basketball this morning already, as a matter of fact. And so my next guest apparently wrote a book with some answers to that simple question of how basketball can go above and beyond just simple entertainment. He is a NYU professor and also an author. His name is David Hollander, and he's nice enough to get up early here and join us on the program. David, it's Dan Grassa. Thanks for hopping on this morning, my friend. How are you? I'm good. Not too early at all, my friend. Thanks, Dan. All right, David, let's cut right to the chase here. How can yeah. basketball save the world? You got to see it as a, as a philosophy, not just uh, the NBA or the WNBA or AAU. This is a game that was invented at a certain time in, in history that looked like this time, and it was a response to those social problems. And if you take the 13 principles that I've identified, positionlessness, balance of individual and collective, human alchemy, transcendence, you start to see that, well, while other things haven't worked so well, maybe over 130 years, this thing, basketball, which has just grown in ubiquity and influence, might just contain the answers to solve 21st century problems. Now, what is your relationship on a personal level with the game? I mean, I started speaking this language when I was six years old on a 15 by 15 foot blacktop that my father laid down with a real basket, you know, a big square, not a shell backboard. And, and me and my siblings and then my friends and then kids from the neighborhood. And that just began a, an engagement with this game, you know, throughout the rest of my life. I still play it today. And how about, we got to ask, of course, what, wh- where does your fandom lie? Where does your allegiances lie? Because, look, I mean, this is New York, David. I mean, you know, fans are going to be pretty diehard when it comes to their team. So i got to ask you, where are your allegiances here? NYU, men and women's basketball. That's, that's where I'm at. <laughs> that, is the, that is the politically correct neutral answer, if I've ever heard one myself. <laughs> Listen, I go, I go to every game. I tra- I've traveled with the women's team to the NCAA tournament in Michigan. I sang the national anthem. Really? Uh, at, yes, sir. Keep those pipes going. You, I mean, you have, you've got this great career going. You got the teaching thing. You got the author thing. You've got the singing thing. I mean, things are working out pretty good here for you, David. I could tell you that. Um, now, now, tell me a little bit about, you know, with your role in NYU, you also teach a class on basketball humanities, correct? Tell me a little bit about that, because i, I got to be honest, when I was in school, I wish that there was a class pertaining to basketball that I could have signed up for. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of people feel like they'd have their Ph.D. right now. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I teach sports business. That's the faculty I'm on. Okay. Um, you know, and the first thing I ask students when they come into our program is I say, hey, who here likes sports? And everybody raises their hand. It's the first, first minute, first hour, and then I say, Why? Because if you understand the underlying thing, then you'll understand why sports business is different than just business. And from that, well, I, this course is my acid test of myself. What about this thing, basketball? 
this is not a business course that I teach how basketball can save the world. It's a humanities course. Mm-hmm. And when I first proposed it to the deans, they were like, yeah, no, that's crazy. Um, but they let me try it. And now it's one of the most popular courses, uh, electives at NYU. We, we had up to 157 students. Um, and we delve into issues like gender, race, immigration, um, loneliness, all kinds of things that basketball well, we feel like we've shown has the valid answer. Talking with David Hollander, he is an NYU professor, is also the author of How Basketball Can Save the World, 13 Guiding Principles to Reimagine What's Possible, Penguin, Random House, Get It at Amazon, Anywhere Books Are Sold, Brick and Mortar Shops, fantastic. Um, he, you know, when I first became aware of the title, David, and to be quite honest with you, I actually saw the book before it was even brought to my attention from uh, my folks here at ESPN, when I saw the title of this book, the thing that got me thinking was, and, and I'm glad I have you here to be able to answer this question because I think others probably think the same thing. Why is it lessons from basketball? And why are they different supposedly than, let's say, lessons that can be derived from other sports out there? Because certainly there are a lot of them. Right. It's such a good question. Um, you know, I make it clear to my class that you can learn great things from all different sports. I love all different sports. I consume all different sports. I think there's tremendous values and lessons from from all different kinds of team and individual sports. I think basketball is especially good. at That's the only claim I make. It's especially particularly good at solving 21st century problems because it's in a small space. Mm-hmm in a small space that makes you see one another. When you see one another, you humanize one another. And that's where it begins. You begin to start to, 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 well, it's not just that's another person from another place. No, that's a person I'm getting to know, have empathy for. And now I'm, I'm seeing myself and, and thinking about, well, how can I, you know, what's this about me and what's this about them and what's this about the whole thing? The positionlessness nature of the game where you can do anything at any time, anywhere. It's not true of any other sport. And so it's really good at creating ideal relationships for problem solving, for crossing differences, um, for a person who's either from an urban or from a rural environment to actually find common ground globally. I mean, it's a remarkable structure, and and frankly, that's what Naismith intended it to be, a social institution as much as athletic. Crossing boundaries, solving problems, that could be applied to either guys on your own team, maybe even the way I interpreted it, guys even across the floor on the other team as well. So there is some of that common ground here. And a lot of the stuff that you're preaching and a lot of the things you're talking about, David, you know, I'm I'm, I'm sort of – taking like a sociological type of a feel from it, you know, just from having some of those courses that I had in, you know, my college years, for example, I think there's a lot of elements to this that you probably write about as well. Right. Well, that's the point. You know, I, I, Naismith invented the game. He said, look, uh, I want this to be easy to play. I want it to be easy to set up. Access was a, was a key, uh, a value um, that he, he was, he, he would was unrelenting about. And when you think about access, when you think about societies today and the denial of access, whether it's for racial or religious or ethnic reasons in whatever society, the antidote to uh, systemic inequality, systemic racism, which is a core unresolved issue in the United States, mm-hmm. is systemic access. It's a core value of the game of basketball. 
Now, there's an element here in this book, and and you have to explain this one to me because I think everybody will get a kick out of this one. Please tell the saint of basketball story, if you will, please. (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) You know, last year around Christmas time, I'm reading in the New York Times uh, about a a village in central Italy called Peretta Terme as a church, been around since the 1500s. In the church, there's a shrine to basketball. People come from all over the country to pray at the shrine. They, they ask for a better season, a better jump shot, a heel meniscus. And the village has been frustrated because their local Madonna, whose likeness is on a bridge that connects the church to the village, the Madonna del Ponte, they applied to the Vatican to have her recognized as the first ever patron saint of basketball, and they just haven't heard back yet. And I read this story, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is us. And I call my TA, who's Italian. He's graduated. He's working at NBC Sports. I'm like, Alessandro, can you believe this? He's like, I'm home in Bologna. The church isn't that far. He drives to the church. He grabs the priest. The priest, the first guest, my first class, and <laughs> how basketball saved the world last semester. I'm like, Father, what can I do? How can I help you? Like, I don't know. I'm like, class, no grade, first hour. Everybody send me one sentence. Why does basketball deserve its own saint? And I put it together in a letter, like the Declaration of Independence, you know, like, like right. because basketball knows no race, no boundaries. I send it to the Pope. Italian media gets a hold of this somehow, La Repubblica, which is like the New York really? Times of Italy. Yeah, they publish the letter in full, feature stories. They, you know, this NYU professor and his 157 students who signed this letter, this is the first international gesture of support for this stalled petition. This could be the difference. That was March 2022. On Good Friday, April 12th, 2022, the Pope recognized the first ever patron saint of basketball. How about that? <laughs> now, extra was that like a little nice little extra credit assignment for uh, some bonus points for the class, too? Because think about the impact that it had. I mean, we're talking about international here. International, the Catholic Church. That's the the if 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 you if you take my class and you haven't somehow changed the world, you can't you can't get credit. <laughs> you know, David, I'm going to be honest. I'm not all that surprised either because I mean I know that he's kind of slowing down over the last couple of years. But once upon a time, I heard that Pope Francis he had a mean midcourt game talking about those <laughs> intramurals that they would play at the Vatican. He was always like one of the first two folks picked whenever they would uh, go to the gym and shoot some hoops. So not surprised well, about he, that one. He, um, you know, he, he loves basketball. Yeah, well, he's, he's a huge sports fan. He loves soccer, which, you know, you know, of course, he's Argentinian, and, you know, he thrilled with them winning the World Cup this past year. I know that. So the basketball part doesn't surprise me. Uh, we're talking with David Hollander. He is the author of the new book, How Basketball Can Save the World, 13 Guiding Principles to Reimagine What's Possible. Take me back a little bit. When did you put the idea, the plan into motion to start writing this book? And I wonder... Was this pre-pandemic, post-pandemic? How did this all come about, at least the early stages of it? Yeah, I appreciate the question. You know, it was around 2016 okay. uh, when you started to see the world go a little crazy. You started to see a lot of division, a lot of conflict, um, uh, institutions just breaking. And, you know, I thought to myself, well, how does basketball, you know, this thing that I love that, that gives me peace, it's the place I go for balance to get my right relations with others. It's a sanctuary space for me. And so many other people I talk to feel the same way. Geez, could I translate this into some kind of language, some kind of vocabulary that could actually be a new source? You know, let, forget the words capitalism, socialism. Let's talk about basketballism. And I, I started to construct this course 
I ran it as a pilot in the summer of, 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 of 2019. Um, the NBA gave us VIP access to the Barclays Center uh, draft. I took them to the, 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 the cage at West 4th Street, to the Millbank Dunleavy Center in Harlem. It, it, it became international news as soon as the course was announced. And then, you know, the New York Times ran a 1,500-word feature, and we got a lot of attention. And, and people said, you know, this is a book. Your 13 principles, people need to hear this. And, and here we are today. How did the events of the pandemic, uh, everything that happened thereafter, the social justice movements and so on and so forth, yeah. did that alter in any way the construction of what you were putting down on paper? Did you have to maybe call an audible at some point and maybe kind of deviate from yeah. maybe the direction you thought you were going in? Dan, it only deepened the, the validity and purpose that there it was. The pandemic hit right in the middle of our course, and all of a sudden, lo and behold, the world did need saving. And my students and I went on a journey. Yeah, we had to, 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 to go uh, via Zoom. They were sending me all kinds of, of great you know, Instagram stuff that they saw about how basketball was, was, was kind of the one oasis where people could, like, take a break. And, mm-hmm. and cops and, and, and protesters could, like, play basketball together in the hoop bus in L.A. Um, and, and that's when the New York Times really got a hold of it because, well, it was really important. We, we met once a week, and it was, it was like a, a healing center for us to talk about these issues in real time uh, through a lens, basketball, you know, that everybody started to see was, was, was a language that was shining above so many others in that difficult time. Do you, and, and you know, at one point, do you remember in the pandemic, the mm-hmm. one thing people wouldn't stop doing was playing basketball. They had to take down the rim cities all over right. the world um, because that space meant so much to people. It was the sign of like health and togetherness that people missed so much well, when we had to socially distance. Yeah, don't get me started on that. I don't think any of us want to relive those times again and, you know, things that you could do, couldn't do. And like you said, even yeah. something as innocent as playing basketball, you could go to the local park and there wouldn't be a hoop. There wouldn't be a rim. And you wonder what the heck's going on. But, yeah, neither here nor there. Uh, l- let me ask you on this one, because, you know, your 13 principles, you know, that go along here with the book. I, I, I noticed, you know, conspicuous from the list are things like load management and player movement, two things that have kind of come to define the modern-day version of the NBA now where guys are changing teams at a rapid pace. It doesn't seem like loyalty is necessarily what it once was. As a fan of basketball, do you think players, superstar players, moving from team to team as frequently as they do, do you think that that's good or bad for the game? Well, I mean – you know, I, I make it a, a, a real sharp point in the beginning of the course. This this is not about the NBA. Um, what I'm talking this is about the game. The right. game, yes, uh, the game belongs to all of us and none of us. The NBA is a is a spectacular showcase for the greatest players that will ever and have ever played the game. Um, there's no easy answer to load management. 82 games plus playoffs. That's a lot. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, would I like to see the best players on the floor every single night, just like everyone else? Of course. Sure. Um, but there's, there's, there's a, so many elements to, I think, what the 
National Basketball Association uh, needs to kind of work through uh, with players um, and players with the league in order to achieve collectively what they all want to have, which is, you know, the finest showcase of competition in the world. And I think that that conversation is going to keep moving forward, too, until, you know, people are satisfied to at least what they see fit here. Uh, how basketball can save the world. 13 guiding principles to reimagine what's possible. David Hollander is the author. Is there anything that we can promote, David, as far as uh, appearances, signings for the book, how people can, you know, get engaged even further as opposed to just going on Amazon, going to pick up a copy? How can they possibly uh, make that happen? Yeah, you can go to HowBasketballCanSaveTheWorld.com um, or at HowBasketballCanSaveTheWorld. Um, share with us uh, what you think, your basketball experiences, and um, show your support for, you know, we're, we're going to be pushing a U.N. resolution very soon. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm traveling all over the country. I'll be in L.A. next week, uh, Pepperdine, wow. UCLA. Um uh, you know, after that, Georgetown, oh, you know, I'm, I'm on tour, but we're going to be pushing a U.N. resolution uh, for World Basketball Day, and you'll hear more about that very soon. I'll tell you, places like Pepperdine, David, you know, you're an academic and, you know, all the cool things that you're doing at NYU. <laughs> I always wonder at a place like Pepperdine how students can actually be expected to take the schoolwork seriously when you literally look out the classroom window and it's right on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> how did you know I have a one-way ticket? Yeah, I mean, you know what, David, if I was you, I would do the exact same thing. I am not coming <laughs> back to these parts. That is for darn certain. <laughs> Dave, thanks for a couple of minutes today, my friend. Really appreciate it. And, again, continued success with the book. And uh, look forward to talking again real soon. Thanks so much for having me on, Dan. Really appreciate it. All righty. That is David Hollander, author again. Don't forget to check out the book, How Basketball Could Save the World, 13 Guiding Principles to Reimagine What's Possible. Some really cool stuff there and really different kind of interpretation look we all know the game we all grow up with it we talk it we love it and you know applying it to possibly other aspects of our daily lives not necessarily a bad thing to stretch the old neurons in the brain there uh 800-919-3776 speaking of basketball we'll talk about the knicks the nets with our pal ian begley of course nba insider for sny that's in about oh 15 minutes or so we go till 12 30 Dan Grasso Show, right here on 98.7 ESPN. This is the Dan Grasso Show on 98.7 ESPN. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code FIRSTTAKE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more, more than, than ever. ever. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to gamble responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. This U.S. promotional offer not available in D.C., Mississippi, North Carolina, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369 for New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. For Massachusetts, 1-800-327-5050. For Iowa, 1-800-BETS-OFF. For Puerto Rico, 1-800-981-0023. For West Virginia, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. First bet offer for new customers only, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day, but sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. 
You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. Bonus 30 minutes today. We go till 1230. Then it is Rangers and Bruins hockey coming up from Boston. And now is the portion of the program where it is my time to tell you that this portion of the Dan Grosser Show on 98.7 ESPN is brought to you by Slomans. Slomans Home Security is celebrating their 100th year anniversary. Call 1-800-ALARM-ME to protect your home and family. Rangers, uh, sounds like they are going to be shorthanded again today because no Ryan Lindgren once again. And remember, you still don't have Keandre Miller. This is going to be the third and final game of his suspension for the uh, inadvertent, we'll call it inadvertent, uh, spitting saliva extraction, salivary extraction towards Drew Doughty. It was an accident, but I don't think it, you know, it wasn't intentional in any way, shape, or form. So uh, Miller is serving the third and final game of his suspension today, so still no Miller on the blue line. Lindgren is still out with the upper body injury, and no Tyler Mott either, who's banged up after uh, getting winged up the other night. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, you look at a Boston team, which is by far the best in hockey, and the Rangers got a challenge on their hands this afternoon. No other way around it. Igor will be uh, back between the pipes. Remember, it was Yaro Halak, which uh, – who drew the assignment and the loss against the Ottawa Senators the other evening. It's, 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 I know that fans get carried away and they want results yesterday, right? And I know that there was a lot of buzz the other night with Patrick Kane in the lineup and, hey, you know, the jerseys sold out and the excitement. And, yeah, it is. It, it's a reason to be excited. And I think that over time it'll pay dividends for the Rangers. But don't go too much by what happened the other night against Ottawa What's going to happen today against the Boston Bruins? They're banged up. They're not whole. The good news is, if you want some light at the end of the tunnel encouragement for the Rangers, is that after today's game, they're off until next Thursday. So you would think that in the coming days, maybe somebody like Lindgren can get a little bit healthier. You're going to have Miller back in the lineup when they go to Montreal. Who's to say what the situation is with Tyler Mott? I don't know how serious his injury is. But you just hope you have a full lineup when you resume play coming up next week. And then you could start to form an opinion. Look, the Rangers are going to be fine. This is a team that's going to be in the playoffs. They are going to be as dangerous as any team in the Eastern Conference. If you ask me right now, and the big if is goaltending, you know, that to me is the missing piece. When you look at the skaters, forwards, defense, I, I, I think they're better than they were last year on paper. I mean, how can you not? Bring it in Tarasenko. And Tarasenko's been playing great the last couple of games. Now he's feeling a little bit more comfortable. Of course, Kane is Kane. They stay healthy. They're going to be fine there. The question you have with the Rangers is the goaltending. And, and, and I didn't think I would be saying that. And not to say that Igor is bad or questionable, but he's just not playing at the level he did last year. So if you could combine the two, they're better, deeper in front of the goaltender this year than they were last year. If you can get that guy playing at a level to where he was even close to last year, then you're talking about a team that can make a deep, deep run into potentially June and playing for that top prize. Remember, they went it all the way to the conference finals last year. But this year, you know, the way things are shaping up right now, you got to go by the Devils in the first round unless New Jersey catches Carolina. And if I'm a Ranger fan right now, you would want the Devils to win this division because I think Carolina is a better matchup for you. 
So in a weird way, if you're going to be in third place, the way the format is with the playoffs, you want Carolina to finish second so you get them in the first round because I think you'll fare better against them than you would against Jersey. I mean, the Devils are, Devils are legit. And wait till they get Timo Meyer in the lineup. They just got Curtis Lazar yesterday, a nice depth acquisition. Lazar scored against the Rangers when they were in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago. Um, Devils are good. Like, they could skate circles around you. Uh, that is a scary, scary team right now. So if I'm the Rangers, Carolina is the path you want to go, at least in t- round number one. And that's not going to be easy either. And that's why this playoff format leaves a lot to be desired, is that you have teams that are really, really good that are going to be casualties in the first round. But that's something that the NHL has to come to terms with, and I hope that they change it moving forward and we can just get back to, hey, the top eight in the East, top eight in the West, and let's get on with our merry lives. We'll see if it happens. When we come back, we'll switch gears, go back to some NBA. Ian Begley, the outstanding, multi-talented, multi-dimensional, Basketball insider for SNY. He will join us coming up next. Talk a little Knickerbockers, little Nets, and all things NBA as well. Dan Gross' show, another hour till 1230, right here on 98.7 ESPN. This is the Dan Grasso show on 98.7 ESPN. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. We're going to talk some basketball. We've talked a lot about it this morning, and why not? It's March, the madness, everything that ensues. And joining us now is my good pal. He is the outstanding basketball insider for SNY. You can check out his wildly popular series, The Putback, which is on SNY.TV. I have been lucky enough to be a guest on multiple occasions, and he is my good pal, Ian Begley, who's nice enough to join us. Ian, long time no chat, my friend. How are you? Dan, what's happening, man? And you know what? What made the show wildly popular was your guest appearances. So I appreciate you jumping on and, and taking us to that level. Thank you, my friend. Anytime. You and Mikey Rob, you know, I'd do anything for you guys, of course. Um, how about this Knicks team? I mean, they're doing anything except losing games. Eight in a row. They're a juggernaut. They can't be stopped. It doesn't matter if they've got big leads and blow them. They find a way to pull it out at the very end. In your wildest dreams, did you ever think that back at the beginning of the season we'd be talking about the Knicks and maybe a top four team in the East this year? Well, look, Dan, my, my wildest dreams, uh, the Knicks don't usually enter them, but I will say this, <laughs> this is not where I saw this season at this point. I mean, I thought, you know, 40 wins, 42 wins, take a step forward, everybody's happy, you're in the playing tournament, maybe you make the playoffs, and then you move on from there because Jalen Brunson – gives you adds a few wins to your team. I didn't see Brunson playing like this. I did not see Julius Randle bouncing back the way he has. It's just been remarkable uh, the way this thing has come together and, and undefeated since Josh Hart has been in a Nick uniform. So a lot of things is going really well for this club right now. Forget about the Knicks and, and, and the script that they have authored this season. How about Randle specifically? I mean, two years ago, the All-Star – 
the comeback player of the year. Last year, the complete opposite. We thought that they may even have to move him out of town because he wasn't going to be cut out for New York because everything was wrong last year. The body language, the sulking, the play, all rolled into one. Now we're talking about a guy, Ian, who might be better than he was two years ago. And dare I say, you might be talking about a 1A on a really, really good team, if not a number one. I mean, Dan, listen, you, you spelled it out when you talked about the bounce back, right? Because I'll go back to his first year as Nick, and that was bad, right? And then there was the talk of, like, fans, you know, wanting to trade him at that point when Leon Rose took over, and he comes back and has an all-NBA season. And then you covered it. Last year was bad. Comes back again. And, you know, he talks a lot about how he prepared himself mentally and physically for this season. And he talks about the people around him who really helped him get to this point. Uh, He references his trainer really helped him on both ends, mentally and physically. And and he said last year that, you know, he was, he loved the success so much that it became difficult for him to deal with the failures that came along the way last season. He didn't handle it well. He, He got with his people over the summer. He worked on that. He worked on his body and here you are. And he's in the moment right now. Like he had a turnover before he made that big shot last night. And my my uh, theory is last year, you know, maybe he lets that turnover seep into the next possession and he doesn't hit that shot. But this year he's locked in possession to possession and he was able to put the turnover past him and do what he did last night. Do you think he's having this type of year if Jalen Brunson is not a part of this basketball team? No, no. And that's not to take anything away from Julius Randle. It's it's more of a compliment to Jalen Brunson. And, and from a basketball sense, I mean, everything was going through Julius Randle for the past two years with the Knicks. And when he was making shots, it was it worked well. Defenses started to adjust, made it tough on him, and it didn't work as well last year. But now, you know, you key in on Julius Randle if you're the opposing defense. Jalen Brunson's right there to take advantage and create something either for himself or for one of the other three players on the floor. So it makes life easier for Julius Randle. He does not have to handle the ball as much. Everything's not going through him. And there are threats to play off of, uh, whether it's Randle or Brunson. So, I mean, that pairing, you talk about things uh, working out incredibly well for the Knicks. That's one of the pairings that's, I think, worked out better than maybe anyone's expectations outside of Leon Rose, William Wesley, Tom Thibodeau. You know, Ian, I'm getting a theme here to our conversation because we talk about the Knicks as a team as a whole exceeding expectations, Julius Randle exceeding expectations. Might as well throw Jalen Brunson into the mix there too because these things aren't supposed to happen to the Knicks, at least not in the last couple of decades. Like when the Knicks go all in and beloved a player like we all knew that they did with Jalen Brunson and they made every move necessary to make sure they brought him in – And you're talking about a guy who had a little bit of success towards the tail end of his career in Dallas that he wasn't supposed to pick up right where he left off coming here because it never works out for the Knicks. And he's gotten even better and superseded what he did in Dallas. Like, uh, is like the universe finally turning now where everything is coming up Knicks? I mean, what is this? (laughs) You know what? And you said it, Dan, and I I think, too, that this was a make-or-break move for Leon Rose uh, because of everything you pointed out, like, they had to attach draft capital to get off of some of the contracts that they had signed a year before in order to create the cap space to bring in Jalen Brunson. So that puts uh, a lot more on this move than if it was just a straight transaction. And then, you know, the connections between Brunson and the Knicks. So this had to work, I think, for 
Leon Rose and his group to, to thrive here. And it's done more than work. It's been, you know, be- better than, again, I most people could have envisioned. Brunson has been fantastic. And he comes back from that ankle. He tweaked his ankle. He comes back on the court last night. And he's still making big shots in the fourth quarter. And the shot making is just remarkable for him. The way he's able to create space, take advantage of angles, get people off balance, and finish over taller players. Just, just incredible. And I, you saw a glimpse of it in the playoffs last year uh, when he was playing for Dallas. And then he just continued that run. And yeah, hats off to him and hats off to everybody involved in that decision for getting him here because the Knicks now have seemingly have a point guard in place for the foreseeable future. And that's not something you could say about this team for most of the last two decades. No, Alfred Payton's of the world, you know, the Dennis Smith Jr.'s of the world. Forget about that. I mean, those those guys are long removed from what you have right now with Jalen Brunson, that's for sure. Uh, we're talking with Ian Begley, NBA insider for SNY. The putback is his series on SNY.TV. You should check that out as well. R.J. Barrett, um, he's now settled into a role on this team where he's the third guy, right? And they gave him that contract extension. You know that he was the subject of the trade rumors with Cleveland or not with Cleveland, with Utah, with Donovan Mitchell didn't happen. But, you know, we were talking about the John Moran stuff that's been going on and things are not trending in the right direction for him. And I think it's getting downright dangerous if you ask me. And in a weird way, could the Knicks landing on RJ Barrett end up being a blessing? None of us really could have scripted that it happening in this fashion, but maybe the Knicks got lucky in that regard too, if the John Morant thing is going to continue to spiral out of control for him? Well, where I go with RJ, you know, generally, and maybe it's because I'm too close to the situation, just observing too much over his career. I really think that despite what you've seen at points this season, he's going to be at a point more often than not where he's impacting winning on both ends of the floor. And I think he is going to get the most out of his talent, whatever his ceiling is, because of the way he approaches his craft. So I, I think you, you go there with that. You know, whether it turns out that he has a better career than John Morant, who knows? Who knows what how this impacts uh, on the court, off the court for John Morant. Uh, it's hard to tell how these things will shake out. But for the Knicks, you know, with Barrett, they, Tom Thibodeau said it the other day, you know, we need to get more from him. We know how to do it, and we're going to do it. And I think they have that confidence in R.J. Barrett. And listen, they're fully invested in him succeeding, yeah. right? Because they obviously signed him to that extension. So whether it's him succeeding as a Nick or whether it's him succeeding to uh, improve his value to other teams and potential trade talks, Knicks are fully invested in that happening. So they're going to do everything they can to get the best out of R.J. Barrett. R.J. Barrett's going to do everything he can to get the best out of himself. I think it's been a little bit of an adjustment, if I had to guess, um, adjusting to the hierarchy of Brunson, Randall, and, and Barrett and where Barrett fits. But, look, I think he's going to contribute to winning uh, more often than not, and I think you bet on that if you're looking at R.J. Barrett's future. Do you think that the results – of however this season ends up. And, I mean, realistically, the Knicks are either going to win a round, maybe make it two rounds in these – you know, that they're not going to the finals. I mean, we would all be shocked. But do you think that however this season ends up, the front office is possibly going to deviate from the plan that they set out forward in developing this team into a championship club like this summer? Would they jump the gun in any way, maybe with a little bit more success than they anticipated having this year? Yeah, I don't think, like, if we're talking about them going, being aggressive, pursuing another player via trade, 
I think that's always been the plan, right? So I don't think that would be necessarily a deviation. You know, we saw how aggressive they were when the Donovan Mitchell negotiations. So would not surprise me at all if they continued down that path of, of being aggressive if the opportunity presents itself, if a player becomes available uh, via trade. So, uh, yeah, wouldn't surprise me in the least. You know, I, everybody wants to know who. I have no idea who, but I think, as is always the case, excuse me, what happens in the playoffs plays a big role in, in who becomes available via trade in the offseason. So if there's a playoff team that does not reach expectations and maybe the management feels like they're at the end of a rope, those are the situations that you keep an eye on. I mean, to me, just thinking out loud, right, I, I assume Brooklyn bunts to build with Mikhail Bridges, but to me he's like the perfect addition because of the way he defends. I mean, he'd be the perfect addition to any team, but particularly for this Nick team, the way he defends, way he doesn't necessarily need the ball but can impact the game without the ball in his hands. You keep the ball in Julius Randle's hands, Jalen Brunson's hands, R.J. Barrett gets touches, um, and you just add in that sense. But the the cost there would be big. The cost for any star on the open market for the Knicks would be big. But, no, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they were even more aggressive in trying to upgrade via trade if they get you know to the playoffs first round, even if you lose in the first round. I think they feel like they would be uh, right there and they would operate as so. Ian, let me close out on this one, and that's about the Nets here. We know that it's been a roller coaster ride for them, and, you know, the Kyrie KD pairing, it, it didn't work out, obviously. Now they're on to another phase. My question is to the outside NBA world, do you think the perception of the Nets, the front office ownership, has been tarnished in any way by the fallout from KD and Kyrie to where other superstars and guys with options are not going to give the Nets necessarily the preferential treatment or maybe look at them as a prime destination because of everything that transpired over the last couple of years? It's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. I don't, I can't give you like a specific answer, but I would say this. If you're a player and you feel like the Nets should have given Kyrie Irving a max deal. I'm not here to say they should or they shouldn't have, but if you're a player and you feel like they should have just done that and, and kept going with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, then you you might be a little turned off. But if, if you're a player and you're looking at Kevin Durant's situation and you see how they sent Kevin Durant to where he wanted to go, ultimately. They sent him to Phoenix. They could have sent him elsewhere and, and maybe gotten a better return. Who knows? But they, they did. Uh, a solid for Kevin Durant sending him to Phoenix. So if you're looking at it through that perspective, you know, maybe you, you see, all right, they're taking care of players. I think it just depends on the prism you're viewing it through. Uh, but by and large, I think players in that, in that scenario, they want to come to a team where they can be a piece that's going to help them win. They don't want to be a, a the hero um, who has to put the cape on every night and score 30 points. So if you're a franchise that can show that you're trending in the right direction, and that player takes you to the next level. I think that's what makes you attractive. Uh, the Durant-Irving stuff, I, I can't see it significantly impacting players thinking unless you're a huge Kyrie backer and you feel like they did Kyrie wrong. Interesting. And, you know, there will be books written, stories told about these few years, even though it didn't produce any sort of big winning on the court, but still it produced enough content for us, guys like us, to talk about. And, uh, yeah, it did happen. Ian, thanks for a couple of minutes, my friend, as always. And, again, check out Ian Begley, the putback, SNY.TV, his weekly series there. And do me a favor, pal, just just go easy on uh, our buddy Mikey Robs for the next couple of weeks while we get through March because I have a feeling our Scarlet Knights are going to be taking us on a roller coaster ride 
side uh, through the NCAA tournament. So just just go easy on Mike while we sort out the Rutgers stuff. <laughs> hey, I always try to take it easy on Mike. As little guy Nick, I can't speak for him, but I always try to take it easy on Mikey. Absolutely. All right, bud. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for a couple of minutes. All right, my friend. Be well. All right. There's Ian Begley, SNY. NBA insider talking a little hoops with us here. Remember, we're going till 1230 today. Then it's Rangers hockey, Rangers and the Bruins. We haven't done any baseball yet today because with the new rules, specifically the pitch clock, we had another example or maybe one of the early examples as to how some of the pitchers, even the most accomplished ones, are still getting used to this whole thing. And it happened with the Mets and Max Scherzer yesterday. We'll hear from what he has to say about it. And oh, by the way, Baseball has already weighed in on what took place in this game. Dan Gross' show, 98.7 ESPN. I frowned down, and I belittled the gift bag This now. is the Dan Grasso Show on 98.7 ESPN. <laughs> so we haven't done any baseball yet this morning, and I had meant to, so we'll do it right now. Obviously, we've got a new look to spring training, new rules, right? Most notably, the pitch clock. And to say that it has made a difference would be an understatement as to how the games are being played, the speed, um, the efficiency, all rolled into one. Here's the numbers that I've been able to conjure up here for you. Just through the first week of spring training, okay? And remember, also, you want to throw in the fact that the shift is no longer a thing, which means that there's more base hits, guys are getting on base more frequent. So in the first week of spring training games, Players were hitting 272. 272 collectively. Not too bad, right? Average number of runs scored a game, 11.9. Compared to last year, guys were only hitting 259. 10.6 runs a game. Okay, so batting average is up 13 points, and there's about a run and a half extra, which is crossing the plate. So far in the first week of spring training, I think you have to certainly point to the new rules as to how this has taken place. And oh, by the way, if you want to talk about time of game with the pitch clock, games are on average about 22 minutes shorter in the first week of spring training than they were a year ago. Now, anytime you have anything new, there's going to be an adjustment. There are going to be people that like it, don't like it, and it takes some time to getting used to. Me personally, when it comes to the pitch clock and it comes to the speed of these games, am I going to sit here and acknowledge that something had to be done? Yes, of course. Games were dragging on. You don't want three-and-a-half, four-hour games, especially during the regular season. All right, It's one of the reasons that I even came around, and I hated it at first, but I came around to the whole runner at second base thing to start extra innings. I hated it at first, but... I've grown to like it over the last couple of seasons. The pitch clock thing, my concern is when I've watched pr- spring training games, and I look, I, I follow baseball, not just Mets, Yankees, all throughout the league, okay? So I've watched a lot of these games. They're fast. They're quick. All right? We've had games already so far this spring that it's the seventh inning and we're not even two full hours into the game. Like, that's unheard of. And it's not fluky either. Like, this is kind of the norm. It almost seems like it's too fast and it's too quick. Now, I don't know if you've gotten a taste of it yet. I don't know if you've watched enough Mets-Yankees games or whatnot. And by the way, Verlander making his Met debut today. 
Uh, I do believe that game is on the MLB Network. It's not on local SNY or anything, but it should be on MLB Network, if I'm not mistaken, to see Verlander because the Mets are on the road today. They're uh, at the Marlins. But before you blink, the game is over. And as player salaries continue to rise, ticket prices continue to go up, and it's not cheap going to these games. My only concern would be if you're plucking down your hard-earned money to go to the ballpark and you want to really just take in the whole baseball experience, whether you have kids or not, but especially if you have your kids and, you know, family and you want to take them all and experience everything the ballpark has to offer. Because nowadays, remember, it's not so much about sitting in your seat, watching all nine innings, being locked in on every single pitch. That's not what the ballpark is. Remember, ballparks and stadiums and arenas and all that, that's not kind of like what they're built for anymore. They give you those secondary entertainment options because it is the experience that it's supposed to provide. You know, if you're a diehard fan, you'll sit there, you'll watch every pitch, you'll score the game, but that's not everybody, right? You have to have the so-called distractions at the park. If the games are faster, And by average, if you're going to be spending, let's say, a half hour less at the ballpark, when does the time come where you're not going to be able to justify spending the money that you spend on tickets if this is going to be the norm now? Right? Are they going to, are they then all of a sudden going to shave off whatever the time equivalent of a half hour would be to what your face value of a ticket price is? No. You know, that's not going to happen. So that's my only concern. Is it taking away too significantly from enjoying a baseball game and the entertainment experience? And the thing that I brought up was, you know what you should do? If games are going to be faster, and if on average you're going to be losing a half an hour to these games for when you go to the ballpark, you know what they should do at Yankee Stadium? You know what they should do at City Field? Open the gates a half hour earlier. Right? Because if I'm not mistaken, the gates open two hours before first pitch. So what happens then? By the time you get in the ball, let's say if it's a, a 7 o'clock game or a 1 o'clock game in the afternoon, by the time you get in the ballpark here in New York, Yankees have already taken batting practice, Mets have already taken batting practice. The home teams go first. So you don't even get a chance if you're a fan, if you're a kid, to see the players that you showed up to see in there in the cage and to maybe you know get a ball, get an autograph or anything like that. Most time the home team is gone already. You don't even get a chance to see them. It's just the visiting club that's out there. So do right by the fans. If this is all for them anyways – Open up the gates a half hour earlier to allow them to enjoy the experience for what they're losing on the back end because these games are being played faster thanks to the pitch clock. I don't think that that's that bad of a suggestion, to be quite honest with you. And again, it's going to take some time. And I know that when push comes to shove and these games start to have greater significance and pitching changes are going to increase, especially in the middle of innings, like they don't do that as much in spring training. Spring training, like the pitching changes are done during the half innings, during the changeovers. But like during the innings, you're going to get pitching changes during the season, which means that'll slow up the game a little bit. But you just want the experience. I understand if you don't go to the ballpark and you're sitting on the couch and you're watching it on TV, you don't want to be there for four hours, which is also one of the reasons why this change was made. So generally, it's gotten positive reviews. Needs a little fine-tuning. And what I mean by that is, Obviously, the umpires, the players, everybody's still trying to come to grips with this thing. And spring training is kind of a time where you get to go through some of these motions and work out the kinks and to get adjusted. And it's not going to be all that costly because they're exhibition games. It happened yesterday to Max Scherzer. 
where he got in a little bit of trouble. And Major League Baseball actually last night had to clarify a rule, which Max Scherzer was ultimately the victim of in the game yesterday. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about what Max had to say. You'll hear what he had to say and whether or not this is going to be something that's problematic moving forward. Dan Grasso Show for another half hour. Then you got Rangers hockey right here on 98.7 ESPN.